were saying, Darby? I was saying, this wasn't like any old leprechaun that you wouldn't say hello twice to. But who was it? But Brian Connors himself, the king of them all, that I got my eye fixed on. I can't escape, you know, as long as you don't look away. Welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language and also a thick slab of all things Irish. I told you when your food was ready but you were making so much noise you couldn't hear me. Faith, I know I can't sing a lick but when I'm roaring like Doran's bull it works up a killing hunger in me. Today as part of our throwback series we'll be discussing Darby O'Gill and the Little People starring Albert Sharp, Jimmy O'Dee Janet Monroe and Sean Connery. Directed by Robert Stevenson. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who's lost his market by waiting too long. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> Do you think I'm a nice boy? <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> London. What kind of man are you at all that doesn't believe in the little people? It's Patrick from London. Guys, uh, we're doing a throwback. We're doing Patrick's choice, and um, listen, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna put it out there right now. Never heard of this one, no really? knowledge whatsoever. But now I feel very, very okay with Darby <laughs> O'Gill and the Little People. Patrick, why Darby O'Gill and the Little People? I've spoken to you guys before about a lot of my film education coming from spending time with my grandma uh, when she was babysitting me and, and just sitting at hers and going through her videos and the films that she had. And this was one of them. This is one I fondly remember when I was younger, watching quite a lot and getting really swept up in uh, the magic of it, I, I suppose. Um, and it always stuck with me, but I haven't seen it in, I don't believe I've seen this in my adult life at all. Uh, and I was speaking to a friend um, recently who reminded me of it. And uh, lo and behold, it came out on Disney Plus, uh, which is great. Really good for us to access to a timely uh, pace. The film's uh, just over 60 years old now, this film. As soon as I was reminded and started thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I really want to watch this again. I really want to watch it uh, now that I'm an adult, not a child in you know more mature eyes and just remember watching it and i had a little wager with myself that none of you had seen it but i think i got that 50 percent uh success on that so gally you hadn't but devlin did you say you had uh no i i have never seen it i i, oh, was, I was i was dimly aware of the title of it right i i had heard of it i think in my head i was probably confusing it with one of the many many adaptations of like gulliver's travels or something oh yeah okay um but yeah no this was uh this was entirely new to me <laughs> well i can see i can see why that comparison is made for gulliver's travels obviously gulliver being massive when he's on the island with the little people i suppose also like my grandma um she she was like uh she's first generation irish as well and i think that this film was um was something that held her to home as well and was a film that she liked watching that reminded of her, her of home and um uh, of, of Ireland of her heritage excuse me because she was technically English but her, her mum was Irish 
and um, maybe my nana as well. Like this film, I don't really recall because I was quite young. But um, I know that this film was kind of designed, we'll come to it, but it was kind of designed with that in mind from Walt Disney that uh, it was a film made for Irish Americans and to um, explore that part of, uh, of Irish culture. Um, that's why I chose it, Gally, and I'm glad I won my bet and you have both hadn't seen it. So, you know, I was trying to think of a film that, that you both hadn't seen. And, you know, more importantly, I wanted to give Devlin a film with a musical number in it because I know <laughs> he enjoys them so much. Oh, mate, this had so many of my hot buttons. <laughs> <laughs> we had musical numbers. It was a lot of whimsy. There's some yeah. excellent accents in it. And... Well, I've, 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 I've put uh, um, a decision in place just, just for myself. You all don't have to follow it, but um, since we're talking about, you know, um, uh, Irish culture and Irish nationalism and stuff, I am actually going through the process of applying for Irish citizenship. Oh. So I feel like I should not do any fake accent shenanigans. So we're going to start calling you O Devlin instead of Dev soon. Yeah? Yes. Yes, yeah, okay. Dev, Dev O Devlin. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm going to avoid doing any Irish accent as far as possible, although I doubt I'm going to be able to hold on to that. Well, to I have written in my notes here just a quick apology to the audience. If we do venture <laughs> into the land of terrible accents and impersonations, which Galley will undoubtedly do because he's terrible at it, uh, we apologise in advance and it was we blame Father Ted for our upbringing. So sorry about that. Definitely Father Ted and not Mrs. Brown's boys. Let's get that. Very yeah, clear. Let's, let's let's draw that line in the sand. Indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, Patrick, before we explore the really quite fascinating history behind Darby O'Gill and the little people, do you have a plot summary? I do. I sure do. Is that one of your first wishes, Gally? You get three. <laughs> oh, I might have to I might have to withhold those uh, those other two for later on, but we'll you know, we'll keep that one to myself for now. Yeah, I've I've written one here. Um I hope this does the job. So here we go. Darby and Gill and Little People, uh film in nineteen fifty-nine. Uh Darby and Gill uh, prefers spinning yarns in the local pub rather than tending to his duties in Lord Fitzpatrick's estate. Darby doesn't want to tell his fiery beloved daughter Katie that his lordship has replaced him, uh, his position by a dashing younger man, Michael, played by Sean Connery. Darby asks Michael to keep this a secret, so, um, and they have two weeks in which to move out of the house so that he can figure out what's best for him and Katie. Now, Darby has encountered the king of the leprechauns, Brian, in the past, who tricked him into making four wishes, and so all his other wishes were lost. And while chasing his horse, Cleopatra on the hill of Nocknashiga falls into a void down into the lair of the leprechauns, his horse... Cleopatra turned into a puka. Wiser now, Darby tricks Brian, the king of the leprechauns, into three more wishes for himself. Will Brian help Darby matchmake Katie and Michael? Can Darby sort out his work situation? And when the banshee arrives, how will Darby face a bittersweet and unexpected turn with just one wish remaining? Leaves us on tenterhooks. Yeah, I didn't think I'd, I'd rattle through the plot, so to speak. I thought I'd give it a little bit of an air of mystery. In the land of the leprechauns or the little people here. Well, Patrick, you, you referred to them uh, a couple of times there in the summary as leprechauns. The only time that they're, and forgive me if I'm mistaken, but the only time they're, they're referred to as leprechauns is in the quite odd thank you letter that Walt Disney uh, penned uh, in the credits, right? 
the rest of the time they're they're referred to as the little people. You're quite right, Gally. The opening sentiment we have in the film in the credits, just after the credits, is is um is a thank you note signed by Walt Disney as as a a card overlaying the town setting. Uh, my thanks to King Brian of Nottinghamshire and his leprechauns, who, whose gracious cooperation made this picture possible. And just to go into a bit of history of the film and, and where that came from, um, essentially what I'm going to say is that there's this fantastic little, uh, I've got to call it a documentary. It's not really, it's a little uh, one hour piece or episode that Walt Disney made in, just before this film came out called I Captured the King of the Leprechauns. And it's, it's fascinating. Unfortunately, uh, very much to, I was really annoyed. I can only find part one online. On, uh, was this on Daily Motion? Because if so, I watched the exact same thing. It, it, you got half an hour of it, Dublin, yeah? Yes. So, yeah. so I couldn't find the other half an hour. I, I found somewhere I could pay for it through an American website, but I, w- I wasn't quite willing to do that because I didn't, didn't quite trust the website. And I've actually tweeted uh, Disney <laughs> Plus because I've subscribed for it. And I, I've asked them if they're going to put these... There's a wonderful world of Walt Disney. It's a series that they had. Um, mm-hmm. Loads of these little films. And this is one of the few that Walt Disney actually appears in the whole episode. Uh, and it's kind of a... They used to make these films that were behind the scenes and, and exploring or the story or fables of their stories in their films. And this one, well, Walt Disney was quite keen to make a story about Ireland. And I mean, he wanted to make this film uh, in the 40s, but due to the kind of technical restraints, you know, make, making uh, little people look lit, little and normal people look big uh, and visual effects, they couldn't quite properly work out how to do it and it was quite unsuccessful in like 1945 and around that time which is why we didn't get it to another like 14 15 years later but um what's great about this little film is Walt disney introduced himself as half irish himself so he wants to make a film of... <laughs> i mean it's tangible it's but... it's a it's a bit of an exaggeration isn't it does he have okay. one he has a, a great great grandfather or something like yeah. that who was from ireland and um but this, this film galley if you've not seen it, it it's fascinating because he <laughs> he goes um oh he goes to visit the most irish guy he knows beforehand he goes to visit um uh an actor uh, i wrote down the, the Pat dude's O'Brien. Name. Yeah, Pat yeah, yeah. O'Brien. <laughs> He was um he was a big actor in the um yeah. in the 30s. He was a big Warner Brothers contract actor. That's right. And uh, so he's like, I, I, it's great when he walks over. He's like, I, I went to see the most Irish guy I know, Pat <laughs> O'Brien. And then Pat O'Brien starts talking. He said, I've been all over Ireland, Dublin, Cork. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Two places. <laughs> it's great that the most Irish guy he knows is not actually Irish. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> Michael O'Flatley. Oh, that is brilliant. Father Michael O'Flatley. <laughs> Holy <laughs> Diocese of Reading. Pat Brown actually does have a really good um, like, sentence in it. and uh, there, there's, a, there's something to explore when we talk about this film, about films at the time, you know, we, uh, about 10 years uh, before this, there was The Quiet Man came out. Um, and that was about you know, an American going back to his homeland. And there's this whole thing at the time about Irish people uh, from America, going to America to either prosper and progress or having failed that or fell in love, fell out of love with that idea, 
going back to Ireland to regress and have a simpler life. And there, there was a slight exploration of that and an idea of that, I think, in the book about my, um, Sean Connery's character, Michael, in this, and certainly in The Quiet Man. Um, and because Disney decided to make an Irish picture, as, as he said, that this, this video, I mean, like, this is the sec- second film in a row, the third, second film in quite short amount of time that we've looked at that has a, something I'm more, almost more obsessed with than the film itself, like Robin Hood and the Pierce Brosnan introduction. Yeah. <laughs> this one has really, really caught my attention because Gally, what happens then? He goes to, to, um, to Dublin. And he consults an Irish scholar in Dublin who, <laughs> who actually presents him with an actually found, with a found, uh, a leprechaun outfit. Oh and, my God. <laughs> and this outfit, not only is it like absurd, he, he pulls it up and it's, it's the coat and trousers like attached to each other. So they're just hanging and there's a little hat and he puts on this lamppost and he's like, that's, and what Disney's saying, well, my, yeah, my granddad said he it was about knee high. So this suit would be in keeping with that height. Yes, yes, I suppose it would. Well, and it is amazing oh, wow. and talking about the folklore behind the, well, they, the, the crazy story that they tell, which is the, the origin tale of King Brian and his, and his little folk is that, um, oh, it's fantastic. I, I did not see this coming. Me neither. That it took in the war between the angels and the demons. Yeah. After Satan was cast out of heaven. Oh, God. Oh, God. And the, and and there's the, a really, really nice animation that they do, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, cool. So the leprechauns hid away from this war, and then the angels said, because uh, they were victorious, said to the leprechauns, well, we, you, you don't belong in heaven because you didn't help us. You don't belong in hell because you didn't help them. So you get a pick of any way you like in the world, and they ended up... Uh, Wait, was it when they were falling for a they thousand fell, years? They fell, uh, they, they fell for two years, <laughs> yes. uh, and then they landed, and then they landed on Earth, and they 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 roamed the Earth, for, I think three times over, and then they they came upon a glittering emerald jewel, and they decided that Ireland was the best place. So they ended up in Ireland, Kelly. That's how the leprechauns got there. As if you didn't know that. Well, thank you very much. Because <laughs> literally, my exposure to the little people and and this 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 image of Ireland really is only in Warwick Davis's leprechaun interpretation. So <laughs> it's good to get it's good to get a little a different perspective on uh, on the history and the folklore. But it's one of the things that I wanted to to nail down for anyone who's never seen it is that. It kind of speaks to to Disney doing this throughout their entire run, right? As a success, you know they they they've done this with their animated films in the in the in the thirties and forties when they when they sort of take folklore and fairy tales from other countries' stories and then they kind of repurpose them. I, I guess that's what they were doing with this because it seems odd now to say you're going to introduce an audience to the Irish people. Because it, we're, you know, globalization. Ireland doesn't seem like a particularly exotic culture now in 2020, but I suppose in the 50s, is this what Americans thought Ireland was like? So um, Americans uh, have a, have a very great tendency towards um, because obviously America is is a country which is aside from the native population entirely constructed from people whose ancestry is elsewhere, and I mean I'm sure you like everyone is aware of how much like Pat O'Brien, how all Disney himself proclaiming his half Irishness. 
and people are quite quite keen to reclaim or to lay claim to those uh, those traditions. So uh, I have some family who moved from from Glasgow over to to America. Uh, uh, one of my aunts in particular, she moved. Um, so my my dad's parents both Irish. Uh, uh, my dad and his siblings were all born in Glasgow, and then my aunts emigrated to the states. One emigrated to Chicago. Chicago, a lot of these kind of Midwestern towns and towns in the Northeast obviously have a huge um, Irish emigrant population. And the level of like almost cartoonish devotion they have to playing out this kind of crazy psychodrama that they are as Irish as Irish can come is very strange. I was there on St. Patrick's Day. I was only about seven or eight years old and they literally dyed the river Hudson green. <laughs> and which is uh, horrible. All the fish would have died, surely. But, you know, everyone gets to proclaim how Irish they are. Well, in, so, in America as well, they're well known for hiring dwarves to play leprechauns on St. Paddy's Day Parade and yeah. uh, and get them to run around the street fl- fl- um, flinging fake gold and mm. green. They dye their pints green on Paddy's yep. Day. But what yeah. this idea is, I'm Gally, uh, and his publicity for this film was huge in the areas of like Boston, New York, Chicago, like Devlin said, those massive Irish areas, because he thought the film was going to be a huge success there to, to give the Irish Americans uh, a film about Ireland and a celebration of it and to remind them of their home. And he thought he was going to get onto a real niche audience for that. Uh, sadly that didn't really work it didn't do as well as they wanted at the box office but that mm. was the kind of idea behind it because but also mainly because Walt Disney kind of fell in love with Irish culture and fell in love with this folklore mm. and like you said his storytelling ability at the time to to grasp onto an idea and to turn it into cinema or, or a story and, and you know to transform it into something cinematic that was the idea behind this and he saw something in it we we only really had I've mentioned The Quiet Man at the time. There was uh, something called Top of the Morning at the time, which were all kind of, you know, more serious films about Irish. There are a few adaptations of something called Fenian's Rainbow as well. I'm pretty sure Francis Ford Coppola of all people directed a version in like 68. Well, funnily enough, um, a stage play of Fenian's Rainbow is where Walt saw Albert Sharp. Um, right. uh, that's, he, that's where he caught Walt's eye in 1947, and um, he came out of retirement to play Derby, uh, and that's that's the play the way he spotted him, and kind of thought he he was fantastic for it. Now they tried to make the film near the time, um, like I said earlier, it failed. So in the interim, Albert retired, and then he got him back uh, um, when when there it was a go, and. Mm. Um, but Gally, in, in this little, I caught, I captured the King of Leprechauns, Walt goes to Ireland and, and he actually, the Irish scholar says, well, you need to meet my friend Darby O'Gill. So what happens is Walt meets up with Darby O'Gill in, in, um, Rothcommon and Darby takes him to meet Brian, the King of the Leprechauns, <laughs> the King of the Little People. Mm-hmm. Wow. In, yeah. in the exact, um, the, the shot. Like, because obviously those, those, uh, force perspective sets, which we, I'm sure we'll get way into later, but they, you can tell it's literally the same frame, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's that, that brick wall. Uh, yeah. first play. In fact, this documentary is intercut with, uh, with some of the footage from the film, Gally. Yes. Because, um, we, we meet, when we meet Darby O'Gill in this documentary, Walt's listening to him tell a tale, uh, of being in, uh, uh, the lair of the lep- the lair of the little people, um, and uh, it's, we, we see the footage of when he's playing the violin and uh, dancing. 
So, you know, it's past tense. The film is past tense to this documentary, technically. But what Walt does is tempts Brian and his 150 followers to come to Hollywood to make the film Darby again on the little people. And that is why, um, sadly, OD, uh, who plays Brian, uh, O'Day, excuse me, uh, he doesn't get a credit because of that opening thing saying thank you to Brian. He wanted to maintain the illusion that Brian was a real leprechaun and came over to help, help, uh, which is a real bum deal for, for, um, Jimmy O'Day. And he thought it was going to better his career. And really Walt kind of brushed him off and said, no, you're a leprechaun. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't recognize him as an actor playing him. I never thought this, but the correlation is now as clear as day. So Walt Disney is essentially the prototype for Vince McMahon on crazy scale, right? Like, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, gotta, yeah, that's, gotta, that's, not, that's not mega dissimilar. Gotta respect the commitment, though. You may as well go all in. Get this, the film was released a year after the copyright had ended on... Um, on the book. On the book, thank you. Good, good. Make sure you don't have to pay anyone. I know, I know. It's kind of, it's very naughty. Um, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna throw shade at Disney because it's easy to to sort of talk bad of uh, the the big and successful, but they've got they've got form. Have a little look at like the films that have been produced by Disney, the entire history, and uh, yeah. and every single list from multiple sites all had the Star Wars films in there, and I was like. That's not interesting. Necessarily yeah. true. So, but you know what? Listen, yeah. it is what it is. But um, and I'm, you know, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna demigrate the film based on uh, on the company that's produced it. Have you seen the film Saving Mr. Banks, Gally? Uh I haven't. No, I've not seen it. Oh, well, that's a very good film to watch to to explore this kind of mentality of Walt Disney, and he's quite, you know, he's, he's very successful. He's got lots of money, and he's very driven to tell a story. And in that. That's a, that's a film I really like, and it's about Mary, um, it's about Mary Poppins, and it's, uh, it's about P.L. Travers, the, the author, and he's convincing her to let her give him the copy of, the copyright of the book so he can make the film, but, you know, the author, Travers, is trying to maintain some dignity and what wants to put musical numbers in it and animation and dancing animals. She wants to keep in touch with the book. And it's, there's a little bit in the exploration of that film that that gives you a bit of um, context of what we're talking to and the the person that Walt Disney was, because he was a visionary and and he, you know, Mary Poppins is one of the finest films I think has ever been made. And guess who directed Mary Poppins? None other than Robert Stevenson, the director of Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Who is British as well? I was just going to say what I was going to say about Walt Disney, which I think kind of surmises him and also Disney as a company. And I think this this speaks of 2020 as well. Is I found an interview with the Wall Street Journal in 1958, oh, cool. and uh, and he said the formula for success for Disney as a brand was to dream, diversify, and never miss an angle. And I think that that is true today as it was back in the 50s and, and with this, this film Darby O'Gill and the little people so we talked about the opening credits and and we were introduced to Darby uh, is that right? Is that the First and foremost we have those establish you know, we have those uh, establishing shots of the uh, of the village which um, with the title card overlay uh, yeah. and Walt's thank you letter to King Brian but then we were with um, we introduced to uh Sheila. You know, 
to, well, Widow, Widow Screw, <laughs> uh, and Kate, who's come along to borrow some tea from Katie. Katie is introduced with the most ridiculous look on her face. <laughs> it is yeah. unbelievable whimsy, isn't it? Definitely so much whimsy. She is whimsically looking up and away out of the frame and churning, possibly churning butter, I think. Yeah, that, that's what she's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, if you if you were to watch that that Eurovision Song Contest a few years ago when Sweden did the churning the milk butter, it wasn't oh, yeah. that innocent. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. It, was, uh, yeah, it didn't quite have the, the source quota turned up that high. She does set the tone for her performance, yeah. which is smiley, smiley, smiley. I tell you, the first thing that really struck me, and again, understand first watch. I mean, my God, the. The accents and the because clearly they had done ADR. They they maybe uh, they recorded this silent on set and then dubbed it later on. The- well, I think there was there was talk of a, a redub in post production to adjust the level of accents, and I believe there's more than one version. Out well, there. and, and oh, okay. interesting you say that, Devlin, because I found on the version that I watched, sometimes it, I couldn't actually understand what they were saying. But then I had a little look on the yeah. Oh, really? I didn't have a well, I had a little look on the interweb, Patrick, and apparently some diehard fans of the film who have watched it on Disney Plus are complaining that it's not the same as their DVD versions. Have you found this as well, Devlin? That this is what I'd heard. Yeah. So the, the there are a couple of versions from home video, and obviously they've recorded all of this stuff, you know, back at the time. And uh, but yes, it's uh, it's one of those cases of. Uh, after the fact, tinkering and uh, uh, revisionist um, versions of films, which of course is not something that Disney would ever get involved in. Huh. But I don't remember having a problem with the accent and listening to it when I was a kid. I, I don't remember mm. anything. Yeah, I, I must admit, I found it pretty intelligible. I, I was, I was fine with it. Yeah, Katie, darling. Can you lend me the loan of a small pinch of tea? I'll pay you back Thursday. You can have it and welcome. I knew you wouldn't refuse old Shayla, and I knew you'd have lashings and leave-ins, but there's little that's lacking here. Oh, I'm going to go straight to it. Like, if we're going to talk about Janet Monroe, you know, she, I, I think she's a very good character. I don't think she's just too bad in this film. She won a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer for mm. it. But there is one line I can't forgive her for, um, which is later on, She's talking to uh to Darby, um, and she goes, "Now sit down and h your stare about." Oh yeah, <laughs> she does. She does say that you go eight your stare about. <laughs> I can't forgive her for that. That reminds me of uh, Lee Thompson in Back to the Future Three, like yep. the accent level on the the ranch there, Michael J. Fox. That what what would a man be doing out in the sun without his hat? a gun. I know I did an accent. And a hat. Oh, no. <laughs> But we are, I mean, I think it's better to do an accent and take the piss out of bad accents rather yeah, than no. trying to well, do it. And we've got form. I mean, let's not forget Lawnmower Man and the gardener, uh, the Irish gardener there. <laughs> yeah, you got a point, actually. Good point. <laughs> I, I quite like Katie as a character, and every description I've ever read of her is she's fiery and she's feisty, so I did that in my synopsis. And I think she does well, and um, I wanted to discuss with you, because... It's written the book. It's come from a book by Hermione Templeton Kavanagh, who's an Irish American children's author, poet of feminist fairy tales, and that's what, in the early twentieth uh, century. And I think she's in keeping with her ideas and ideology. She, 
she's a very sympathetic character who's very independent and forthright. She she doesn't back down, and uh, you know she knows what she wants. And I, a bit like when we, funnily enough, I suppose it's throughout the era, but when we spoke about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, that the, the main female uh, character in there. I think they have quite similar attributes. Um, I agree, Patrick, on that one as far as the attributes. I think my issue with the film as a whole is I'm not sure it's as interested in, in kind of seeing that through, if that makes sense. Like the opening mm. scene when when, yeah, yeah, when yeah. Sheila's talking about, and I did it in my little opening line, because I, I, I literally took a step back where it's like, oh, you don't want to miss your window I was like what what are you talking about she's 20 and yeah. it's like you don't want to be left on the shelf unless it would be a man to cook for oh you have me father to cook for so you do so you do but i'm into man of your own time enough for that time enough lost the ducks there's many a lass has lost her market from waiting too long oh you can smile now but who in this town would have you am i that bad you miss my meaning. It's not a gossoon doesn't want you. So the the, the couple of things that, that are uh, unfortunate is that when she does uh, um, angrily react towards uh, her Prince Charming, because I guess like even though Sean Connery's character Michael is not uh, uh, a monarch or a royal of any type, he does basically portray the archetype of a prince, which is that marrying him is going to regain her status in the society. So that kind of is a bit, obviously, retrograde. And also the fact that when she storms off doing what she thinks is best, uh, she ends up just kind of um, unusually dead for it. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's just, sort of laying, she's just sort of laying down. Yeah, rather than struggling and dying. Yeah, okay. And then she, you know, she gets she gets punished for, for, for lashing out. And then at the very, very end, when uh, Michael... Goes to get his uh, his tasty dessert from the from the bad bastard that's been mouthing off to everyone in town, and he duffs him oh. up in a pub. Uh, Katie's just sort of sitting outside waiting for him to get finished, and then when he does, yeah. just sort of congratulates yeah, yeah, him yeah, yeah. on a fist fight. Well done. So I think, I think this is where Disney's tampered too much. Well, I did read something about um that uh, there's another little kind of I don't know whether the character in in the books or the book. Uh, was supposed to have a mother who had passed away. But um, I remember reading somewhere that uh, this is possibly some overly uh, uh, scholarly thought process being applied to this, but that um, a lot of times you would get motherless women in these Disney movies, the the young heroines. Mm, yeah, um, the, the reason being that because they they have grown up without a mother, they've had to learn already to become domesticated, if you will, like that they've learned how to be the wife of a house without having to get married. So it means that whichever man sweep, like swoops in and, and, and gets to take her away, she's seen as being like extra desirable because she doesn't have to be housebroken yeah. in a way. That, that's, a, that's a proper Disney trait. Unfortunately, with Disney, you, you know, you do have to recognize that for a lot of people, this is mass media stuff and you do kind of consciously or subconsciously you do take this stuff in don't you mm. you kind of you see it and then you kind of identify with characters and then it's like subconsciously you're realizing wait all these females always seem to be like you said Devlin, they're in domestic uh environments 
and they're never quite paid off like the princes are. But, you know, it's a small one, Patrick, but you're right about the performance and the character. It's just a shame that they don't follow through with it. It, it. She starts off strong and really well, even to the point where she is the one to to kiss him and to, you know, go on her own beliefs. When she's in the dream and you're saying marry him and she's like, no, that's my final answer. It, it's all... It's, she starts. Katie's a good character, but I do... Yeah, the, the curve drops in the in the final third, shall we say? But we we get Lord Fitzpatrick dropping off uh, a very young, very good looking uh, Sean Connery. Uh, this is Michael. Yeah, I was going to say Michael McIntyre. It's definitely not Michael McIntyre. <laughs> <laughs> Michael McBride, and the, you know the old woman. Uh, she's sort of uh, Sheila. Uh, devilish name, isn't it? That Sheila. Uh, she's she's sort of trying to trying to work in that actually her son Pony is more in keeping with being the new caretaker. Um, but let's get to Darby, who's in the pub, who's played by Albert Sharp. You've already mentioned, you know, Walt Disney was like, "This is my man, come out of retirement." I had him down as a kind of mental Dick Miller type, but Irish, <laughs> and um, he's spinning a yarn, isn't he, in the pub. The first look I got at him was in the old ruins on the top of Nochnishiga. And what did he look like, Darby? Oh, just like any other leprechaun, only he, being the king of them all, had a little gold crown on his head. Tell me something, Darby. Did he have a, a long tail and a cloven hoof? Now, who ever heard of a leprechaun ever? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to listen if you don't want to, pony. But you needn't make fun of those who do. But I do. I want to listen. I want to learn all about them. Patrick, uh, here's a question, right? So he's telling the story about the little people to all the pub. This might be me, 34 years of storytelling convention. I couldn't work out why the townspeople were hanging on off, off his every word and believing him at the, at oh, the start of the film. Think, think of at the time that they're in, and they're in the pub and someone's telling a story at the time. In those, uh, in, in the, even in England, in, in these pubs, people would gather around the storyteller. And if you're a good storyteller, which Darby O'Gill is and has a story to tell, then you hang on his every word. There's no TV, so there's nothing else to watch. Uh, the, you know, later on, there'll probably be uh, music playing in that pub. But right now, there's a storyteller, and you buy your pint and you listen to that storyteller because you're you want to know. And they, you know, it's a small town, it's a small community. It's uh, in the you wouldn't be surprised if there was children listening to it as well, because he's spinning a yarn and it's storytelling. It's entertainment. Yeah, I guess it's one of the first of many kind of. I mean, a, a lot of this film lapses into stereotype, but it lapses into yeah. stereotype that's very well researched. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like well, Robert Stevenson would have known this as well from his family because he grew up uh, in an Irish household as well. Um, and like even to the point where I think it was his grandma put out little pots of milk just in case the little people came and needed a drink in his house. And so I think those things are quite in keeping with a rural little village at the time. You know, like the next the next day, Darby goes to the next town to fetch a bell for free for, for the price of the bell's music being his. And I think that that's the same sort of context. That's the same uh you know kind of expected lifestyle that they had at the time again forgive me because i I, i'll say now right now my exposure to disney films i kind of missed all the um classic animated films so my exposure is always have a surrogate 
for the audience, i.e. I'm a kid watching a Disney film, and here are, here are the three that I grew up on that I loved. The Mighty Ducks, Honey, I Shrew <laughs> the Kids, <laughs> and Mary Poppins. <laughs> so when I'm watching this for the first time the other day, I'm like, why are we, why are we, this isn't our main character. <laughs> so this old drunk manservant is our, is our main <laughs> character. I really found it so, I yeah. found it so odd, Patrick. But I mean, as a kid, you, you what, you, 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 you were happy to kind of be like, I'm going to hang out with this dude for the next 90 minutes. Well, that was another thing of Walt Disney's as well and Stevenson's that they wanted to make it quite Irish. You know, not, not have an American come in or mention talk of America like, like the quiet man they wanted. A, you know, a, an authentic feeling and presented Irish story uh, or Irish picture is what Disney called it. So that's why we get um, uh, your man uh, as Darby, who, you know, and he he was a massive Irish star at the time. So it wasn't just the Irish American audience he had in mind. It was Ireland because this guy was described as the dean of Irish actors uh, in, in decades before this. And, and you know, so really he's quite a star in Ireland. So it's quite a big name in that respect, even theater or what. But you, but, but, but to be fair, but to be fair, you wouldn't have known this as a kid. I, I'm so, I'm just saying, I, I don't want an American. I was just like, why isn't he the one who's telling the tale about the little people? And we have a kid who, and he's the grandfather maybe. And it's the kid who needs to, to go it's on the adventure. It's quite an ensemble, uh, isn't it? Like, Oh no no! It's just, it's just that it's yeah. just that on the adventure. The, there's literally no there's, there's no, no children kids in, in it. Right? Is that, that was yeah. that was the thing. I found that really quite jarring. That's all. But again, I don't have like a, a history with all of the Disney classics, so it just found I found it very odd because there wasn't the kids. Stevenson even did um, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. I don't know whether you've seen that, and that has kids in it. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang kids, Mary Poppins kids. Yeah, okay. but never really nobody comes later, one. right? This is 1958, and those films are that's when we're in the 60s is that right so they they move into that space where they yeah. have kids drive the story and, they, and there are adults in there to, to sort of take them along that was all it just, i just found it slightly odd that, that we were going to do on this hmm. this sort of fairy tale adventure but we didn't have a kid and instead we had this old guy and we've just done baron munchausen and and they 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 paired <laughs> yeah. them up right which even we said in munchausen it was a little bit odd because it's kind of quite adult, but it's a kids' film. Children and little people, and then we pair him up with an adult little person. Well, this is it, yeah. And also, mm. everyone's getting pissed, which I just found really, again, authentic, maybe. Yeah. A little bit stereotypical, but I did like the way that it's like, you'll not have any whiskey, you can only have stout. Now, this was this was interesting, because we're like, we're pushing kind of, you know, the Irish stereotypes back, so you've got, uh, you've got, storytellers you've got tall tales you've got the kind drinkers of and fighters folklore yeah you got drinking and fighting but also you can differentiate between the different types of those things so mm-hmm. pony is the bad type where he wants the whiskey the whiskey is the devil's drink but the stout that's just uh you know good brew exactly that's just that's just good stuff so darby o'gill as um you know he, he's he's the town kind of crazy but he's also the town storyteller he tells a tale about how he goes uh up to the mountain sees king brian has three wishes he seems like quite a a giving person darby he wishes um he wishes for his health and and whatnot but then that there the, this game of tricks uh, of tricks between 
the little people and Darby goes back and forth throughout this entire story. And he tricks him into four wishes, which means once you've done four, you get none. Now, uh, what about your fourth wish? Me fourth wish? Try me. You'll find I'm a generous man. Then I'll be a generous man. I'd like a cock of gold like this for my good friend, Tom Kerrigan. And another one for that decent man, Pat Scanlon. And another one for that door full of a woman, Molly Malloy. Is that your fourth wish? It is. <laughs> Three wishes I grant you, great wishes are small. But you wish a fourth one and you lose them all. <laughs> Little people have a reputation of being uh, tricksters and conniving, and this is the playful element of it. So he loses all his wishes. But the, the idea of that is that Darby then learns later on and is wiser. I think he says to King Brian, "Like you'll never have a wiser adversary than than I." Oh. I mean, I was smiling and reveling in this false perspective that we start introducing to the film. Uh, because I think it works wonderfully well in this film. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna save the false perspective for when we get down into the little people's lair. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you're right. And um, and they, they set up their their dynamic, their antagonism. It's sort of, uh, yeah. The word always gets kind of misused and or overused, even. But it's like friendly banter in it between the two of them. This story, I think, does get across a, re- uh, a respect. So. Going on just a little bit further, that that night, um, once Darby's retold this tale and he he's asked Michael to keep it a secret from Katie that he's lost his job. But that night he goes out to get Cleopatra because King Brian has put the come hither on him. And the reason he's put the come hither on him is because he overheard him losing his job earlier and he wants to help him and take him away from his uh, responsibilities. Now, when you get in the layer, just to, I know I mentioned the false perspective, when you're first introduced to it, it's quite a simple, neat trick. But that, that layer looks amazing, doesn't it? It's, um, it's, it's undoubtedly my favorite part of the film. The, the, the set and the way that the, the so for those of you that, that don't quite, uh, oh, never heard of false perspective, you would have seen it in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy when they managed to get, you know, all the characters in in the in the one which show. was hugely inspired by this yeah from yeah, from what right. i could from what that's i right. found out from a, a, a blog which was written by a production designer uh the one of the production designers on lord of the rings was 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 directly influenced by this this was uh, i think they used a lot of the same techniques which is that's right extremely impressive well let's talk about Keith Allen Shaw, who, who's the the um, the pioneer of VFX at the time and, and, um, matte painting as well. Uh, he, he's the one who designed all of this, but he, he was helped largely by Stevenson, who the director is apparently like quite the mathematician and read up on quantum theories and he got it. So, so those two collaborating together, they very easily and comfortably worked out the perspectives. But in order to make that layer, they, they had to build like a new soundstage at, um, Burbank. It's like the biggest one they they never have. It's massive, and the amount of I can't remember how many lights they had in there, but it was a shit. Oh no, yeah. you because 
in order for perspective to work, everything needs to be really well lit. Yeah. Even in the, the, the background and the foreground needs to be evenly, really well lit, lots of light in order to keep everything in focus. Mm. And yeah, of course, you need to have an extremely wide uh, depth of field. You need to be yeah. able to get yeah. everything in. Um, and the, the, the amount, like the, the, I mean, it was one thing to have, you know, uh, uh, Ian McKellen kind of towering over, um, yeah. Uh, uh, Elijah Wood, but the, the height difference between them was supposed to be roughly half, I guess. It was supposed to be just over yeah. waist high, but these guys are supposed to be like knee high. Yeah. I will admit, Patrick, up front at this point, we're now what, like about 15, 20 minutes into the film, maybe? Yeah. I found this film a bit difficult. <laughs> I knew it. I, I did know it had, a, it would have enough to keep your interest because I'm guessing the layer spiked your interest oh god yeah the the set design was was fascinating because at this point it was something for my eyes to kind of latch onto and to uh, at least you know i could now think especially because of how long they leave the shots up they don't rely on cutting very much at all these are long Mm. long long shots that go on so yeah um so darby when he falls down the well you've got um you've got a combination of a force perspective you've got a giant uh darby Yeah. yeah The two small actors can walk around. The big shoes are fucking the big brilliant. Shoes are great. Yeah, that's wicked, isn't it? And then they jump off his stomach as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this stuff was great. And the, the next shot, which really impressed me, is when he follows them down a cave. Yeah. They are towered, you know, they're, they're, they're largely uh, lit from the front, so they're in silhouette pretty much. And uh, they managed to get contrast into the shot. Like you said, it's... You do need a lot of light to be able to get this to work, but they they still manage to have contrast, light and dark going on. And uh-huh. so they walk down the cave down the right-hand side and they're dwarfed by it. And then Darby walks down the left-hand side and his head is almost touching the top of the, the yeah. passage. It's incredible, isn't it? And but then we go into the lair and when the, the crowd by his feet part ways and clear a path for him, he literally walks through... Uh, a crowd of little people and it, it it's unbelievable you know you, you when you watch it the first time you watch it as a story the second time you're trying to figure it out i like it's baffling to me but they made it work and the thing that gets me always is how darby can be big but in the background and then the little beaver can be small in the foreground because to create that that's something else yeah i i, w- I was constantly trying to work out how they did all of that during this scene because i was locked i was locked in i'll also say now patrick at this point that i fell asleep the first two times uh, attempted to watch this film oh uh, just before this guy just, be- You're uh, just, just before we got to um just before we got to this moment and then the third attempt i got to the moment yeah. and i was like oh this is like a feast and i'm i'm trying to, and i'm trying to work out how they've done it and there's a nice bit of there's a nice bit of back and forth. There's there's actually some some quite good comedy going on between the two of them. And then, and yeah. I don't want to be a naysayer, then the music starts, and I start becoming a 34 year old trying to listen to Radio One again. <laughs> My grandfather Paul told me there were three things that little people are mad after: dancing, whiskey, and hunting. Be sorry, he wasn't far wrong. Eh? Then I'll give you the fox chase. Ah, the fox chase. First, you'll hear the getting of the huntsmen and the baying of the hounds. Grand. Away we go. And da, three, clap. 
see, this is all the stuff I remember from my childhood the most, mm. is this scene and this music and all that, because it's bonkers. It's bonkers, and it's, it's cinematic, and it's a big dance number, and it's fun. And then we get all the horses, and the ride of the horses round, which looks incredible <laughs> as well. I, I, no, for me, maybe because I, I'm latching onto when I first watched it, but I still found this a very enjoyable sequence, because it's, it's nuts. And the premise is... King Brian says to him, "Stay perfect. We're gonna have fun, and there's gonna be music and laughter." I am not doubting the uh, the manic nature of it. I just wanted a bit more. Mm. I'll be honest with you. I wanted a bit more choreography. If you've got a musical number like that that lasts for yeah. over five minutes, yeah, sure. uh, over five minutes, just going round in horses. Some Irish would have been just nice. some choreography would have been good. But instead, they just keep flicking their legs, <laughs> and I was like. You gotta do more than this, yeah, especially because yeah. we, you know, we struggle with some of the stuff in in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But my God, did we all agree that every single dance number and musical number was beautifully choreographed, beautifully composed, beautifully blocked? It felt yeah, like a real yeah, missed yeah. opportunity. You've got all of these special effects. I wonder if they were just well, inhibited by it because why wouldn't? And then why you, wouldn't you have his yeah. Mary Poppins and it. Yeah, why wouldn't you have like? A, just get a choreographer in and get them to actually do something. <laughs> Instead, the the best thing we get is they jump into a, a, a pot of herbal oh, goo, cup. and that's it. I was like, oh. um, I, 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 I was going to say, the first thing that this made me think of, because it did give me a little bit of a headache, was that uh, around Christmas, um, I watched... Uh, do you guys ever see a film called Fred Claus? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, from the director of like Wedding Crashes or something and I don't know why I think I was just going through the Skybox because I was bored and I downloaded like every Christmas film I could find and I'd never seen this and it's about uh, Santa Claus's slacker brother Fred Claus as played by Vince Vaughn and there's a scene in that where Vince Vaughn starts a um, uh, an elf disco with the assistance of an, oh my God, yeah. an elf played by Ludacris <laughs> on the decks and it is like headache inducing it's just chaos and and it doesn't end and i don't know why it's there i don't know why it started and i don't and i don't know why it's not finished this is obviously you know that i think i just have i'm missing that part of my brain where where i can watch large groups of people dancing and understand <laughs> why i should be so i think i should probably absent myself from making judgments on this but i will say that i <laughs> I had to time that that scene because it felt very long. It's not that long. I know. That's what was mad about it. <laughs> the thing is, I do think it's a missed opportunity from what Walt Disney said making an Irish picture. Like, why don't you? Mm. Why aren't they doing a Kaylee or something? Uh, the little people, Irish. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. But then, on the other hand, I do like how mental it, it is. Mental. I mean, it doesn't stop them. It, this actually mentalness goes on for another. 10 minutes because Darby tries to steal some gems but they fall out of his pocket because all the all the little people have de- it's not 10 minutes no no I'm not about the next scene I'm not about the next scene so then uh, oh, so, right, yeah. right. so then uh, they go on the is it is it a fox hunt that's the song because he plays the fiddle uh, yeah, yeah 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 it's it's the, the, the chase yeah. yeah so they go off and do their yeah. chase and then Darby's escaped the lair and he's now and this is all part of their little joust He's got Cleopatra, and he tells Cleopatra, "Oh, don't you worry, I've got this drink for for someone very special later on." Then we have this 
this joust where it's about getting a little man pissed. And I was just like, what are we doing? And they just keep singing this song. And again, forgive me, Patrick, but there's yeah. no melody. I was like, I wish oh so. my God. I was just like, what are, the, what are we it's doing? Not, it's not supposed to be a melody. It's, it's two men getting pissed at a barn doing the little like folk songs to each other. It's not, supposed to, it's not a musical number. It's just, uh, it's just little limericks to each other. And if it's music you're after, what about a song? A song? Aye. You know the wishing song? I don't know. Oh, they better not try it then. You have to make it up as you go. <laughs> I can make up a thousand songs so I can. Can you? Of course I can. All right then. The wishing song. Oh, I wish I had time to sing you a song. But when I get started, I sing all night long. <laughs> can you put a rhyme to that? Try me. Go on then. Oh, singing's no sin. And drinking's no crime. If you have one drink only, just one at a time. Devlin, <laughs> yeah, you've got to back me up on this one. I, I will say that uh, the, the, the concept of it, the idea of it, the idea that they're trying to outwit each other and that this is like, you know, a little game of one-upsmanship and stuff, but it's, uh, is, is uh, I get it. I get that that's how the leprechauns work. They're tricksy people and you have to, you know, and Darby's learned his lesson now, so he knows better and he knows how to counter him. But I, um, but I also, it was the the amount of very stagey laughing they both did. Oh, it goes outrageous. Even <laughs> Darby's pretending to laugh because he's pretending to be drunk. And the king of the little people is the king of the little people, so that's his laugh. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, yeah. It's you know, I, it's it's understanding it in the plot and thinking, yeah, that's right, and then actually watching it as an experience sometimes feels a little different. I, I think I, I struggle with. But this scene drives the plot, right? Because this is how he gets his three wishes again, and he gets the most. Of it. Oh, in fact, sorry, just just off kilter, just very quickly. One of the things I can't figure out is how they do the jump. You know when he jumps through the door? Yeah. It looks like wire work, doesn't it? I think it is wire work, yeah. is it not? It looks amazing. But it's, it's like it slightly sped up. Are they slightly sped it up? But either way, it looks... Well, as in, like, like overcranked the camera I a little. I think so, yeah. I think they've, Maybe. they've overcranked it. Because it, it, it does work. Because it's the same with the little people when he first gets into the lair. Yeah. And they do the jump on his yeah. onto the rock and then onto his stomach. They sped it up so, one, you can't see the wires. But it also gives that, uh, you know... They're smaller, so of course they would move more nimbly and more quickly. I think it, it, that all that stuff yeah, really goes great. Cool. I like a lot of jump. But the thing is that you've got me thinking about performance-wise and the laughter, because I've never thought about it that. But I wonder if it's just because the films I watched when I was younger are more in tune with theatrical acting. Mm. I, yeah, very, 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 very much so. Um, I, do, I do, thinking about it, it's never bothered me, and it still doesn't. And I wonder if it's just because... I don't, I, I don't care, and I don't want it to bother me because it's just, I, I don't see this as a, you know, it's going to win Oscars for acting or anything like this. But I just see it as a nice film with these whimsical performances are fine for me. Sorry, mm-hmm. going off there because you got me thinking about the laughter. When I thought I was out, it pulled me back in. The uh, the when he gets <laughs> when he gets the cat. And we get that yeah. model cat claw. Oh, I was pissing myself laughing. Oh, God. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. It's great, isn't it? We get the giant human hand, grab him, oh, and then we cut to him with a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, God, it's hilarious. When that puppet goes in the bag, I think he says, Oh, the devil, you're da-. And I'm just like, that, that, I was, <laughs> I was, I was laughing my head off because you can see the little animatronic legs. And I was just like, that is oh, brilliant. Yeah. That, I wanted more of that. That's what I wanted more of. <laughs> it's so funny, isn't it? God, it's hilarious. Yeah, I do love that bit. And the thing is, unlike the hand, they kept cutting back to it as if they were like, They'll never know. And I was just like, it was brilliant. It's just, <laughs> this claw coming in that's just an arm painted. I was like, that is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I don't know why it reminded me of... Um, do you guys ever watch Dial M for Murder? The Hitchcock film. So there's... Uh, obviously, that was shot for 3D. And there's a scene where somebody needs to be dialing a telephone and it needs to be very dramatic. And I assume it also needed to be in three dimensions. And the cameras at the time weren't good enough to be able to get a hand to create a good stereoscopic effect. So they built a fucking enormous telephone and a giant foam finger to dial it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so obvious. It looks like something from children's BBC. Uh, And then Darby's, he's off, right? He's caught, he's caught the King. He's got him to do, um, he's made a wish, which is, um, you, you're going to say that he's lost his magic. And you're going to stay with me for the next two weeks and then I've got two more wishes and he goes off to the bell to collect the yeah. bell that the priest has, uh, has, has sent him on the, the hierarchical system of this town felt really strange to me Patrick and again I wonder if it was just a uh, an outsider coming in and trying to kind of say well this is the culture that we know of Irish folklore so the priest is the most important man in the community fine get that Catholic community but the Lord fits back. Is he though because of how Pony speaks to him? Well, the way that Pony speaks to him, but every time Darby yeah, speaks to him. But that, but that, of course, like casts uh, Pony as, as, you know, the bad lad, the outcast. Yeah. Even, even in the first sequence where uh, the priest walks in when um, Darby's telling his tale, even Pony stands up and takes his hat off. Yeah, they all dot the hat. Yes. And, yeah, that's... But, but it's the two characters, so it's the priest and then the Lord, who I thought Lord Fitzpatrick would definitely become a baddie, but instead, he's a goodie, but he's... I didn't understand how being his manservant is in the in this community seen as like high status. It just felt really strange that that well, was the, it's not, the it's dynamic. It's because he's, he's the landowner and he probably owns the whole town because he's the landowner. Yeah. Everyone probably pays their rent to him. That's yeah. Lord. Fitzpatrick. Even the church probably plays rent to him. But the, the thing is, like Fitzpatrick's a good guy because that's not a bad deal he offers Darby. Oh no, it's a great says, deal. I don't understand uh, why he's got an issue with you're, it. You're, you're, yeah, well, it's Katie. He, he's worried about Katie more than anything. He's worried about his daughter. But you know, the, just to say, the deal is you get free board now and half pay to retire, which is great, which is perfect. But Katie, of course, is a way of living, and maybe. I don't know. I think it's just he knows that Casey loves the life they've got now, and he doesn't want anything less for her. I don't think Casey it's does. it's almost like going back to the old um, like the you know the prince and the princess thing, like that you know she's a princess of sorts, but one whose position is is now uh, in question, and it's only through you know her union later with with Michael that she regains her status. At, like the gatehouse, the fact that they live in the gatehouse gives them. Gives them a huge amount of status within the the village. I don't think she's bothered about status so much, though. I don't know whether she is, but I think the film is. The film is, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I I didn't read it that way. That nah. Well, okay, fine. I didn't read it that way. That she's bothered about 
or the film's bothered about her status. I think it was more she's bothered about her dad and Michael lying to her because my, she's falling in love with Michael. Michael's falling in love with her and her dad. She's looking after. I, I, there's a, there's a really nice moment actually where she defends. It's just after he's got um, King Brian pissed up on Poshin. And Michael says uh, he'll have been drinking loads to come up with that tale about little people. Over and she defends him, says he's not a drinker now, but we know he is. Oh, he is. So I think Kate's proud, and you know she's defending of her father because maybe she knows he's old and he can't do the job that well anymore. But she likes the life she's got. I don't think the film's that bothered about her and her status. It's just more. There's a, this, the, the deceit is the main thing about Katie is she wants people to be true to her. Mm. And that's the main crux at the end. So I, I didn't get that. Uh, it's an interest. Your perspective is very interesting because I never got that with the, the status thing at all. The status thing I only really got with was Pony. Yeah, I guess it was, it was more, yeah, it was more subtextual. I don't think, it, you know, she never said it outright, but, um, but it's, it's within the film. So you've got the, the, the widow, Sheila, the first thing she says is, you know, the, the fine position your father has with the Lord and that uh, uh, Darby tells Michael that um, uh, his, his worry about Katie being moved out to the cottage rather than the gatehouse is that the gatehouse gives them a standing in the town. Well, we, you know what? I can't believe we've yes. gone nearly an hour and we haven't spoken of, um, of old 007 himself. Uh, Sean Connery... I mean, I'll be honest with you. The eyebrow dancing he was doing when he first meets Katie in the opening scene is magical to watch. It's like watching two really jazzed up horny caterpillars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you know he came third in a Mr. Universe competition? I did. I did not know that. I'll have to send you the photos because he was a Mr. Universe competitor before this, um, and which kind of brought him into acting. And he, he was contracted by Universal at the time, but he was loaned out to Disney for this. Oh, God. And he hated singing in this film. <laughs> oh, well, I think we all hated him singing in this film. I mean, that is, <laughs> it's, not, it's not great, is it? I, I read that it was dubbed, but is that him singing in the film and then they released a song? It sounds like him. Have you ever seen the seagull? Flying over heather, all the crimson sails and Galway Bay, the fishermen unfurled. Oh, the earth is filled with beauty, and it's gathered all together in the form and face and dainty grace of a pretty Irish girl. Oh, she is my dear, my darling one, her eyes so sparkling, full of fun. No other, no other can match the likes of her. She is my dear, my darling one, my smiling and big island one. I love the ground she walks upon, my darling Irish girl. It sounds like the, the singing voice in the film sounds like sounds like both of them. Yeah, but it's it's all rumour and who knows. I think Connery apparently did it again and uh, recorded it again in 1992 for a special celebration of Disney programme as well. Hmm. Oh, wow. Which is quite cool. Oh, good speed, Godspeed. Well done, Connery. <laughs> <laughs> I think he does okay in this film. Like he's, it's a lot of eyebrow dancing and smiling and a lot of shoulder grabbing of Katie. Do you notice that yeah. Katie has both her upper arms grabbed quite a few times in this film? He's not particularly great in this, but then nor has he actually got a whole lot to do. He's there to he's there to actually be just really good looking, 
Prince Charming type who's a bit dim, a little slow on the upkeep, um, but is, you know, quite quite a nice chap. You know, he doesn't want to see Derby out of out of house. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a nothing role, to be honest with you. I did read and, you know, my you know, my thoughts on on IMDb trivia. I read that, you know, this was the film that the producers of Bond saw. I don't buy that for a second. It was like four yeah, years I, I later remain, that Dr. No I was released. Unconvinced I'm not convinced. This. this is quite a nice little anecdote, though, and if it is true, him leading him into Bond. As, um, Connery himself later recalled that James Bond producer Albert Covey Broccoli was viewing films in his search for Bond and saw Connery in Darby O'Gill and the little people thought he might qualify and called his wife Dana. And she took one look at it and said, why? That's James Bond. I did wonder, like, why? It's not a particularly, you know, impressive or... or no, it, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really have any of the traits that you associate with uh, James Bond, which is being a suave bastard. I guess he's got, like, a little, you know, twinkle about him, especially that sequence later on where uh, Darby tries to show him King Brian, and he just sees a rabbit. Yeah, yeah. There's there's, there's a couple <laughs> of nice moments with him with Darby, uh, even when he um, tackles him. He's like, "Oh, forgive me, I uh, I, I haven't got to say to her." So that, it's it's all quite nice stuff. Even when he wakes up and he's um, he's been planted as being pissed, um, it's quite it's quite good. He's like, "I think I know who it might be," but it, it, he doesn't really go hard in, on the accent, which is a blessing as well. He's just sort of pretty much yeah. doing Sean Connery, which setting uh, setting a template for the rest of his career. We established in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves that Connery will only do an accent when Connery wants to. This is probably uh, a weird admission, but because Sean Connery never does an accent in a film and just sounds like Sean Connery, and uh, my dad had a very broad Glaswegian accent, and I never heard him attempt any other accent. And something about that in my brain, I always put that together as a correlation that people with Scottish accents can't do accents. <laughs> I'm trying to think, then, did, did Robert Carlyle ever do a strong accent? Where's Ewan McGregor from? Uh, well, he's from, uh, he's from Edinburgh. Yeah, that is quite, not to say he's got a neutral accent, but he's not the strongest Scottish accent. Carlyle did a nice uh, Liverpool accent on yesterday. Um, Who is that, sorry? Carlisle. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I, I then heard uh, there was a comedian, I can't remember his name, is it uh, Kevin Bridges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Bridges does does like a does like a spot-on English accent, so it turns out it was bullshit. But <laughs> I believed that until far too late in life. <laughs> it was just a Scottish... Devlin, you know what it is, though? It'll be the Connery effect and also the Cox effect, because Brian Cox... Outside of his Hannibal Lecter, tends to just be I'm playing Brian Cox, and then you're gonna yeah you're gonna have that. Or you're well, he's not gonna he's have got a very again he has a, he has that kind of that more um, uh, you know kind of patrician Edinburgh well educated yeah you know, yeah they're, they're, uh, East Coast Scottish accent exactly exactly not to say that I know what both are but my fiance is a pure Ouija so I know what a, <laughs> I know what a Glas <laughs> I know what a Glaswegian Ooh. accent well now we, I mean we can we can nail this down um, uh, if you wouldn't mind asking her to do an accent. <laughs> Yeah, what, what a, a short Connery accent or something? <laughs> any, any accent? Oh, any accent. Okay. Irish. I'll get. Her, she's got. I'll get her to record one, and we'll uh, we'll put it in the next episode, whatever that might be. <laughs> <laughs> you quite like the flirting, the flirting scenes between Connery and Monroe, because you know we oh. often speak about uh, 
I don't mind those scenes. The point at which, like, after they, um, after they've gone on the picnic, after there's the song, uh, there's, uh, Darby takes Brian to the pub and and stuff and and then there's a scene with Katie kind of singing to herself and I've just written the sentence uh, we are in the doldrums here. Uh, <laughs> so I, I felt there was a bit there was a pace a pace lag a pacing lag throughout quite a big section of the middle of the film. Why are we interested in the Katie Michael love story? I want to be hanging out with little people like so to me mm. what well, that was my big problem is that the best scene of the film was half an hour ago and we've never returned to that world the problem is it's quite hard to film it all isn't it no no i I agree i just i guess i just wanted more i wanted more little people that was all yeah i i wanted more little people certainly um and i suppose you have to bulk out the other characters because we touched upon it before there's no it's kind of an ensemble thing really and all the parts are, are built up a bit more uh, you get more of Pony being the jerk at the dance, and Katie refusing him. Mm. You get the, you, you get some nice. It's all about King Brian, really, rather than the yeah. people plural. So there's the nice trick of the bag taking the the nice twenty year old whiskey and spitting the glass back out, and I saw it with my very own eyes. Yeah, I did like that, uh, which is a nice sort of trick. King Brian speaking to uh, Michael and Katie in their sleep. You know, some more camera tricky, very simple, but effective. A bit before that, when uh, when Brian and Darby have a little fallout, and uh, Brian threatens him with, uh, in order, wrote them down, a scourge that will make the potato famine look like the regatta. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, that all of his cows will die of black leg, and that his sheep will die of red water, and that every cradle in town will have a changeling. But these are things that Irish folklore rumors at the time as well, and this is what they tell their children to put the fear yeah. into them as well. You know, like in it, I, I quite like all of this because it it is tongue in cheek. This film a lot, certainly with what King Brian says, and I do think that there is humour in this film, and I think that comes across quite nicely. Um, I do agree. I, I want more leprechauns and more fun times with them. So towards the end, Katie has, um, storms off to go and get Cleopatra from not Nishiga. Um, Michael's been knocked out and, uh, Darby, um, he's the banshee and he said he's heard the banshee before when his wife, Katie's mother died. Um, you know, Michael, I quite like this line because this line is quite important to, to the folklore aspect of it. It could be the wind because, of course, it always could have been, could probably was the wind that people were hearing when they think it's the banshee and the banshee was simply combing their hair. And we get a nice chroma key effect when the banshee comes. Um, we discover Katie, uh, like it looks kind of like, like solarized film. Man. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, Walt was a bit annoyed because he didn't think the combing of the hair came across well enough. But if you look closely, the. I saw it the second time. Right. Yeah. Because that's an important trait. But of course, uh, I don't think we learn in this film, but it's certainly an eye captured the King of the Leprechauns on my favorite new little, little documentary film. We learn that the Banshees, uh, doesn't take you to death, but warns you of death. Mm. So Darby knows it's Katie that's in trouble. And this, I think this is a well-rounded thing for Darby's character. He's his last wish. He's already, he's just been, sorry, he's been tricked out of his second wish, uh, earlier on, which he's pissed off about. But in his last wish, um, Katie's found strewn on the, the side of Notnashiga, uh, 
like you said, looking particularly dead. And Darby then sees, uh, you, you know what? I, I remember being absolutely terrified when I was a kid of this banshee. This, this banshee put the fucking willies up me. Um, cause it's, it's quite a scary thing that, that looming, well, it's the banshee, you know, it's mm. the of death. And I think the film did a really good job of me when I was younger. And, and again, I, I probably recalling the emotions, but, I, I still think it's quite an effective thing, um, the Banshee in this, because it's weird and ethereal. And, and when he opens the door to his barn and it appears at the doors like a scare tactic, that, yeah. that got me when I was a kid, mm. big time. Mm. And but maybe that was more shocking. And this time I did feel that the death coach or the, forgive my pronunciation, the Costa Badar, uh, approaching and Darby's sheer terror and fear that he knows what it is that someone's about to die and going off to death. I, I remember getting quite upset with that when I was a kid. And this time as well, I remember like getting into the film. I was still kind of upset by what it means and what it, what it was. Cause I, d- I didn't actually remember the, the ending properly. Of course it's Disney. I assumed it had a happy ending, but, um, that coach came out with a headless horseman, a nice little visual trick. And it all silhouetted and dark and deathly. I, th- I think all works well from, you know, like a kid's film to, to put in a bit of horror and some scary stuff in it. It's in keeping, isn't it, with, uh, with the Disney formula? You know, they always try and, yeah. um, they always try and inject a little bit of threat, a little bit of, a little bit of peril. Um, and I think this particular yeah. image they use again, if I remember in the Hercules animated film, I'm sure it's something that you know that comes back to take souls. That might be Greek legend and their version of it, but as you can imagine, this is. A and I agree with all of what you're saying because um, I, I think it's really affecting. I just wish it. I wish we'd had maybe a setup for the Banshee, and I had a little go at uh, you know here I am, 60 years later, rewriting this film. I had a little kind of in my mind the way that I would have I would have pieced it together is that instead of having Darby wanting to have wishes because he's going to get kicked out of the manor house. How interesting would it have been that actually he was maybe running out of time and then he was going to, you know, that actually death was coming to him, maybe his lifestyle, maybe something along those lines. And that, and then the threat would be from Pony that he sees, he doesn't believe Darby. And then he wants to take the, take King Brian for himself because he wants the wishes. He could be, uh, you know, he could be trying to, to usurp Darby and swan off with his daughter. You could have, you could have pressed that element a lot. I think, I think they could have done. And, yeah. and and the other thing is that when, when Darby says the line about his, um, about his wife and Katie's mother, I was like, Oh, why didn't we, why did we, why wasn't this mentioned before? Like, so mm. when, when it comes and it's like the last 10 minutes, I sort of, all the things that you're talking about, and I guess this speaks to you were a child and you're just living it, you're living and breathing it in the moment. I was like, oh, I needed this to be set up. So this is where me being older, watching it for the first time, I'm seeing some of the issues with the kind of, the way the story's played out. But in the moment, you're right. This would have been terrifying for a child. I mean, regardless of the effects and the fidelity of them. I I never uh, thought of the performance of Darby as anything less than very committed and but I think I generally lean away from from the more theatrical kind of presentation style just because it's not really my thing. 
never really yeah. been big into to, to theater, musical theater, that kind of stuff. So I think it's just a preference. So I, I do well, yeah. tend to kind of pull back from it. But those moments towards the end when he's got the, the rain machine on him and he's just like haggard and terrified and, and resigned to things, I, I found that sequence really like it, it for a film that hadn't really grabbed me for most of the running time beyond kind of the technical elements this was the point at which i was kind of it drew me in and uh, i think i agree with gals it would have been i think great if if a bit more of it could have been sprinkled throughout the running time but i, I do think that this was a, a wonderful bit of performance right to right at the close to finish it up Jake Bryan! Jake Bryan! what is it man and i think it's testament of that how it affects you of what a good job sharp does i think he's excellent in this and but also um uh, jimmy o'day because uh, their relationship's really good mm. the line he says when they're last seen together yeah yeah it's it's really nice and just before that last scene he's on the windowsill and he's like darby i I can't, I can't send the death note away. Once it's come out, it has to return with someone. And he goes, well, I wish to be there in Kate's place. And uh, Jimmy O'Day's uh, reaction to that, like, sure, you don't know what you're wishing for, Darby. Like, really serious. I, I really believe in that reaction that he, he has there and that sentiment um, there. And then uh, when they're in the death coach um, going on, it's a really lovely scene between the two. Like Darby's come to terms with his fate and, you know, he's, it's really nice that Brian's there at his side. And, but it, again, a nice little bit of trickery. Uh, King Brian makes him make his fourth wish and saves him, which is a, which leads to the happy ending of the film. Now, I hadn't really, uh, considered the plot too much till talking to you, but that's kind of, why we do this and why I wanted to talk to you about it because I'm starting to realize how blinded I am by how fond of this film I, I've been uh, considering my, my childhood and, and watching it there and remembering it just as a complete, I don't know, like some bonkers fantasy that I just really enjoyed watching as a kid for what it was. I've never really thought of the plot before. The problem I'm starting to realize is Katie and Michael. And while it's fine, and I like the musical number, uh, which we haven't spoken about because I want to spare Devlin's blushes, but um, she's my dear, my darling one, Devlin, which, there you go, I've done it now. I I, no, I like all that stuff from the films of <laughs> of my past, but the film maybe is a film of its time, and it concentrates too much on the love story, whereas now your, your more modern thinking, Gally, would have a more intricate plot, and I agree Pony could be far more involved and there could be some more town politics and the priest involved and all sorts. But the thing I was thinking of, uh, and here's something to, to, to ask you if you ever considered this, that this is all in Darby's head. None of it's real. 
the little people aren't real, the Banshee isn't real, the Death Coach isn't real, uh, that, that Darby is in fact the poacher of the rabbits and what's in his bag is a rabbit because, you know, that's what Sean Connery sees, that uh, Michael sees, that's what, um, when Katie interrupts him telling the, about to make his third wish in the pub, a rabbit escapes and, you know, the priest trying to get his confession out of him, what's in your bag? Oh, you don't want to be knowing about that. And, you know, he, he's, he could be the poacher and he's not very good at his job and that's why he's being replaced. And he's just telling these tales as we, uh, we, as I was telling you earlier, we assume that people did to pass the time and to make themselves grander and they're pissed up in the pub on their nice whiskey or their stout. And is he just making this all up, Gally? Is the other element of plot that could have been explored in this film, uh, when you think about it? No one else saw the Banshee, just him. Uh, you know, and he blames it. Maybe he's got PTSD from when his wife died and blames it on the Banshee because it's Irish folklore of the time. Um, few things like that to, just to consider in, in this story as well. No, I, I, you know, I never even, uh, I never even considered that. Um, but no, I think that would normally that kind of, uh, plot device I would normally scoff at because I, I, I don't like being tricked for an entire film unless it all plays out exactly, uh, you know, as, unless it's been sort of set up that that could be a potential option, but you're right, it could have been. Um, I like I like that better than what we end up getting, which, like you said, feels very kind of conventional. There's too much of Michael and Katie, or if there was too, if there's too much of them, it's because they didn't do enough with the time that they were given um, mm. from a story point of view. Like they should have either involved those characters or don't have this subplot that kind of... It's like when, when King Brian's over their shoulders. Am I to believe that they were never going to fall in love until he had the conversation with them? Or were they going to fall in love and he just accelerated it? That's the other thing that you could you could think about. They were already falling in love. This is just the plot device that it's in their dreams, but we're giving... You know, we're tending to Darby's belief that uh, the king had helped them fall in love together. Mm. So, you know, it's all in... Darby's mind, but what is in fact happening is they're dreaming of each other because back then I think people were more susceptible to falling in love quicker. Yeah, yeah. Doing it, it was a day, I think, wasn't it, or two days? Uh, it was pretty quick. But... Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's two weeks, isn't it? Because we do reach the deadline of two weeks in the film, which doesn't make sense to me the timeline. But never mind. Mm. Um... <laughs> no, yeah, because Katie, because Katie says in one of the scenes, "I'll, I'll only, I'll call you Mister." Um, I was going to say McIntyre again. I'll call you Mister McBride because I don't. Uh, I'll not call you Michael uh, when I've only known you a day. So I was like, okay, fair enough. It's been a day. I was like, I was thinking about yeah. the two weeks ticking clock thing that never really came to pass. But yeah. you know, the, the, yeah, but the, the end doesn't. Doesn't Michael say technically today you've got to get out? Which yeah. is, which is it doesn't make sense. <laughs> maybe it's an, maybe it's an Irish two week. I mean, I know that you know if you're pissed up two weeks. Yeah, it's like get, you're getting the time machine of whiskey and, and stout and two weeks <laughs> soon happen. But just, just one more thing before the film is properly wrapped up and we can speak about it. Um, uh, the fight, the fist, fisticuffs in the bar at the end. Um, yes. But now this, you know, this maybe the only bondish thing he did in the whole film. But I love that they keep cutting away to Darby's facial expressions during mm. the fight. Oh wow, he's just gurning. He's so good. I, I assumed it was because they didn't want to show like fist on fist like violence. Yeah. but it was just yeah, like, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. You have to be able to show it, show enough of it to see what it is. And 
I've said it before, the film does have comedy at heart and it does it quite well. But then, Devlin, your favourite bits at the end, yeah, when they're singing on the back of the carriage? Is that your favourite bit? I all forgot that happened, to be honest. Because <laughs> <laughs> in, in that terms, they did make it, a, or at least they took elements from, from musical cinema, which is uh, over the credits, you've got um, music, which is playing like little leitmotifs from yes. different pieces of music that you're going to hear throughout the score. And then the end of it, you've got the big rousing uh, reprise and then, and then cut. Mm. Like it doesn't even go to rolling credits, does it? It's no, just, no, it just cuts. It's just done. But there's one more thing that I just wanted to to talk about is some of the technical prowess in this film um, from from Ellen Shaw, um, who I I think his work in this is amazing. Uh, it's the matte painting uh, technique that's used so well in this film as well for like the town and the town's spire, for the hill of Nokmashiga, for the 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 king's lair. Um, uh, and Devlin, I, I think you're a big fan of this process. Um, if... I was, yeah. I, I looked up the dude, uh, Peter Ellenshaw, just because I, I was very impressed as well. Um, uh, again, having not seen so many of these films, and, and I've not seen any of, uh, I've, I've never seen Mary Poppins. Oh, okay. I've never seen Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So, um, oh, you're going to hate them. <laughs> fair. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe I could just, you know, see some clips of the three to five seconds where they do because I, I am yeah. a little a little fascinated by by my painting processes ever since i watched um uh, a documentary about uh, uh murnau's work on uh mainly on sunrise actually mm. which was like oh, yeah. one of the last of the, the the great kind of silent movies and that he would use a uh, a bunch of different uh matte painting techniques and also um uh, a technique whereby you have like a, a miniature set and then you have an angled mirror where you scrape away sections of the silver so that you can see another set placed behind it. Um, and watching this the first time, uh, I didn't really process the images in the opening credit sequence. And then oh, yeah. I went to the, to a website which had uh, side by side comparison images of, of the original locations and then what he managed to do. It's and amazing, isn't it? It is. It's almost. I mean, it's yeah. almost flawless, right? Oh no, it's seem it's seamlessly integrated. I think a lot in this was painting on actual windows. Yes. To, to, yeah. Uh, so the, the window being the foreground, you shoot through the window with a locked off camera, but yeah. the landscapes look beautiful. There's a shot of yeah. Nakashima where the clouds are actually moving as well, which I'm not sure how they achieved that, mm. but that is a wonderful spectacle. Uh, genuinely looks incredible, incredible doesn't it because i mean we didn't i don't think we did we yeah. mention it before i mean this is all shot shot in california so we're not in ireland and it really is yeah they, they do a fantastic it's all, yeah. job yeah, it's all backlog yeah so it's fantastic the way that they... it's from some of their Burbank studios and on some of their ranches so you get you know like that green hill where uh, michael and katie run down that looks it looks suitably Irish and done okay, like nice mm-hmm. and green and, and you know whatever the king's layer i think we agree is the best set and spectacle in this yeah. film. There was a there was one moment where you had uh, King Brian leaning his elbow on the um, armrest of the throne, and then you have Darby sitting on the other end of the armrest, and they are they are managing to maintain the perspective. It's mind blowing. It is. Yeah, and like you said, you, you quantum physics absolutely because you to to trick the eye and and nail that in camera. 
I, I, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine how painstaking it was to to do the measurements and get the focus and all the lighting. Incredible, and for ninety, you know, again with all these things, you have to temper it. But that would be impressive in twenty twenty, let alone nineteen fifty eight. Should we do it? Should we go around the table? I think Patrick, we know we might know your your. Well, you can. I can read. And I can say that I don't regret watching this film. It was, it's. I I really enjoyed revisiting this with you because. Uh, I wanted that fresh perspective and I wanted to see if I remembered this film the way I did when I was younger. And I'm glad to report that I certainly felt the thrills that I did when I was younger with the Banshee and the Death Coach, the the Irish jig, um, which is bonkers, even more bonkers now that I'm older watching it than when I was younger. But still, I'm still wowed by the film. Uh, and I was still wowed by, I was wowed by the film as a kid. I was blown, you know, I recognize that uh, King Brian was amazing to watch. And I, I totally believed it in a way because I think the effects have seen this and this. And I have a feeling that both of you will recommend this film purely on a technical basis rather than storytelling or anything. But if you're a fan of young Sean Connery, go ahead. Um, I'd recommend it for Albert Sharp because I think he's wonderful in this film. I think Jimmy O'Day is wonderful in this film and I really enjoy their performances and uh, their relationship more than anything in the film, having watched it again. Um, you know what? I, I like a bit of whimsy and a bit of Disney and a nice film. If you're going to watch it, watch it on St. Patrick's Day for a bit of Irish, um, uh, not, you know, nonsense. And yeah, I, Gally, you, no, no, let's have, let's Devlin put his out of his misery and I mean, I'm love this film. <laughs> yeah. Take me out back of the shed and <laughs> old yellow. Which was also director Robert Stevenson. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, this is a tough one, really, because I'm not sure that 35 years old is when you should really be encountering this for the first time. <laughs> As you say, for a film that, that is 60 years old now, I think um, it's kind of... Not to say that, you know, that, that films from the 1950s or before can't be appealing... I think they can. I think there's plenty to enjoy in them. Um, I think the combination of um, quite a, a, a stage-bound Disney uh, uh, family entertainment plus uh, all of the, the the kind of the, the more theatrical elements that I, I, I as a kid I never really had this. So I don't have much to relate to relate it to. So I. I was missing a lot of context, um, and I am, of course, uh, a whimsy deficient, uh, miserable bastard. No, in all ways. My next pick's going to be just as whimsy, just for you, baby. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I, I found it a, a, a bit difficult. I did watch it all the way through. And then I watched it again, but the second time I went to watch it, I, I loaded up. Oh, yes, I signed up for Disney Plus for this. And um, I have to say that I, again, not having a great deal of, of the films that I particularly want to watch, I was I was a little underwhelmed, to be honest. I, I felt much like you were saying that something like The Wonderful World of Disney, that's exactly the kind of thing that should be included on something like this. The amount of archives they have, this is exactly what you incredible archives and none of it's on there and i'm i'm hoping it gets integrated because uh, they're missing a trick there 
Yeah, they they preface this by saying that um, because of course this is from another time uh, that you uh, will have what they call um, was it perhaps outdated. Uh, uh, cultural stereotypes, which is a thing I believe they're running in front of quite a few of their films to kind of explain away <laughs> some of the more egregious, uh, because, you know, we didn't get too far into uh, cultural appropriation and colonialism and stuff. And I don't know whether that's particularly, I, I don't think that would have been much fun to chat about. But um, what would have given even greater context would be to give people additional material, considering they have basically unlimited resources and access to all of the footage you would ever need to be able to do this, why not contextualize a film like this? Uh, if, if something is, is, is going to be outdated or difficult to jive with as a, as a new viewer, then why not give people the, the context in which to, to appreciate it a little better? Because it wasn't until after I'd actually found out some of this stuff for myself that I, I found, I, I will say after the first viewing, I wasn't sure we would have much to discuss because I just found it a bit tricky to get through, but having watched it again, having looked at how they made it, I did find it a lot more interesting. Uh, how good is I captured the King of the Leprechauns? Yeah. That's an interesting, it's a really interesting bit. Uh, um, yeah. the, seeing Walt Disney just utter the sentence with total, uh, with a totally <laughs> casual demeanor, you mean uh, use midgets? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm half Irish, you know? <laughs> Uh, that, that was, yeah, that was quite something. But, um, as a film, it wasn't, it wasn't the one for me. I'm also not quite sure whether, like, kids of any, I, I, I don't, outside of, like, my, my nieces, one of whom is only three and one of whom is barely aware of her surroundings, I, I'm not sure what age kids would be introduced to it. I guess, um, much like how you were, you were saying that it, you attach it to specific memories of watching it with somebody who introduced it to you i think you would probably need something like that so um but yeah that's that's my that's that's my i like to think very fair summation but um it is it is always great to watch these things that otherwise there's literally no way i would have ever watched this film so uh at least i am now very aware of the work of peter allen Shaw, and we'll probably check out that youtube documentary that you mentioned yeah it's really it's really cool it's about an hour long uh this song it's, it's really interesting yeah sorry um and galley how about you? Well, firstly, we'll we'll link that documentary in the show notes uh, for anyone who's interested in um, in checking out his work. Yeah, I'm gonna I'll, I'll, right. I'm gonna echo a lot of what Devlin said, so I won't repeat it. But I think the sentiment is probably uh, about the same. I'll be honest, Patrick. This yeah. film put me put the come hither on me a little bit, and I, I'm afraid <laughs> I might come off as though I have a heart as cold as White Christmas, but. That's white Christmas. Like, <laughs> I think he said a wet Christmas. No, he said a white. It was the Irish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I checked the quote. No. <laughs> I had to because I, I didn't know if it was wet or white. Um, but no, a bit like Devlin, you know, <laughs> 34-year-old man, non-Irish, watching this for the first time, probably not meant for me. But what I will say is, especially if you're interested in kind of um, sort of the evolution of Disney and where they are now and where they come from, you can definitely see the, the sort of the formula and the staples that they they put into the films that a lot of people love in the '90s, like Aladdin, Mulan, Pocahontas. You know, the idea of going away, finding a culture, and bringing it to an audience that might not fully be au fait with it, and then having that diversity and being able to have representation. The the example I had, and I didn't mention it in the episode, was that. 
when my big fat Greek wedding came out, I was conflicted. I was like, well, I've never really seen a film about Greeks. But I took a little bit of umbrage because we don't just shout oppa every two seconds. Oppa! <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not something that happens. No, you've got the smash plays. No, but we do smash plays. But only at Easter. But the, <laughs> the, um, and, and, and weddings as well. But I was, I was also kind of like really quite happy to see, you know, Greek people in a movie and people watch it and really enjoy it. So I wonder if the Irish people, whether they kind of just embrace it because of how stereotypical it is in, in the good and the bad. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, it, it's not, it's not for me. And I don't know quite whether or not it would hold like a child's attention now because there are scenes that just meander they're either too long or they don't have enough stuff in them but like you said patrick as a technical exercise certainly if you're going to watch this and you want to try and replicate those forced perspectives my god you've got to watch this even if you just get the um the the, the king brian layer scene just watch that scene and try and work out how the bloody hell they did it yeah as far as the story and the the characters yeah, I found it a real. I found it really difficult to get through myself, but it's because the musical element wasn't quite there. We had two songs, and I thought neither of them were particularly very good. And and yeah, maybe if you're a Sean Connery completist, I had one song. The other, I keep telling you, the other were little jokes. Yeah, it, it wasn't, it, but it didn't. It, it, it didn't. It, it wasn't for me. But I, I'm gonna regretfully not recommend it but what is great is what i what is great though is that you know like devlin said you know if we just stayed in our lanes all the time and just watched the films that we we like then quite frankly we'd end up in the netflix amazon recommended list so it's good to it's good to be able to just move out of that and watch something that's completely out of your wheelhouse so i appreciated it from that point of view patrick can you tell our audience where they they may find darby o'gill and the little people oh well i mean i mentioned it before um disney plus is darby o'gill and the little people at the minute and you know if you if you don't want to subscribe to it you can do your seven day trial just to see it uh and you know these these things online link you to other films you can watch robert um stevenson's backlog on there uh, of his disney films which is I'm, I'm going to always recommend him as a director because I'm a big fan. Mm. Uh, and I believe it's your turn, Gally. So I've decided to go to the upper limit of what I consider a seminal film being, which is outside of a decade. This is in my top five cinematic experiences uh, at the cinema. And, uh, and, I, and I also wanted to discuss a director who has undoubtedly been one of the most influential filmmakers of the last 20 years. So, uh, of course, I'm talking about a Christopher Nolan film, and we're going to be talking about his 2010 blockbuster, Inception. So, because uh, I, I, I wanted to discuss with you, um, of course, the technical aspects, which I think most people, it's lauded, but I really wanted to get to see whether or not you guys had the emotional connection that I did when I saw it, so uh, so we'll 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 discuss it. Uh, that's that's my pick, and hopefully you don't you know press gang me into changing it and going back to our mantra of it needs to be from uh, from thirty forty years ago. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right then. Well, uh, I, I think we'll say our goodbyes. I, I've completely forgotten to have a, a, a line from the film, so all I'll just say is ah, yeah, we. 
Yeah, we Della, yeah. Uh, so it's Galling in Glasgow. Uh, <laughs> saying goodbye. Uh, stay safe. Take care of yourself. Oh, and it's uh, Devon in London. Uh, down with this sort of thing. Be careful there. <laughs> you went on. Uh, well, I like a lively girl. Patrick from London. Oh, thank you very much, guys. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Boys,